0: Hey, everybody, it's Dan Dan, and today we are diving on into a step study. So we're going to pull out our handy dandy pocket guide to the steps, the 12 steps and 12 traditions, and open it up to step seven. Now, step seven is a turning point step. It coincides, it kind of is the culmination of five and six, and then we do seven. And the idea here is extremely short in the big book on page 76 there's a little prayer we're going to do that at the end and in the 12 and 12 it's a little bit longer but instead of telling us like how to do this step it kind of gives us a picture of what it's like to have done it what's expected of us what's on the table what hangs in the balance what are we going to get from this and man it's a challenge. So we we get these character defects and in step six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all of these defects of character. All right. So that's what seven's ultimately all about. It's just a, the, the doing of step seven is really just a simple prayer, but the frame of mind is maybe a little more difficult to maintain. So it's important to keep that in mind. This is not a one and done. This isn't a, a finished step seven. That's never going to happen. And in our big book it says that when we're ready, when we're ready we do 6 and when we're ready we do 7. That's they they come at the same time. So if you've done a fifth step and you sit with your sponsor or a person and you talk about these character defects and you say, "Man, I'm entirely ready to be done with these things that block me off from God, that block me off from success, that keep me in failure mode, that keep the obsession for alcohol and drugs on my mind, that keep me tangled up in this world" in a way that leaves me restless, irritable, discontented, sensitive, depressed, angry. I'm ready to be done with that. I'm ready to be done with that. And th- then we dive into step seven. So it's, that's its purpose. It's important that we recognize that it's a change. The steps up to now kind of focused on how do we get ourselves in order, right? And the reason why we wanted to do that is so that we could go serve our higher power. And in step seven, we're, we're saying, okay, we've done that. I understand how to get myself in order and perhaps maintain that order. And I'm going to step over this threshold and not look back at me so much now. I'm going to look at how I can be of maximum service to God and my fellow man. Woo. Maximum service to God and my fellow man. Easily lost in this sense, sensitive, self-centered, selfish alcoholic's mind. I'll tell you that. So. How do I do that? And that's the step seven prayer. That's why it's just a simple prayer. It ain't nothing to it. So in five, we we made holes in our lives, right? And the way we deal with things. And in six, we're saying we're going to step away and leave this hole. And we want to fill that hole with something. And it's to do stuff for God, to be in service to our higher power and our fellow man. And naturally, That will lead us into steps eight and nine, the very first acts of deliberate service to others where we're gonna go out and do something to clear the air. So step seven, here we go. Humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. He gave us a definition of humble in five and six, and it's really just knowing who your true self is. And that exercise of five and six have brought us there. Humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Since this step so specifically concerns itself with Humility, that's the key ingredient. I know who I am, and that is not going to do. I'm going to be who God wants me to be, because that's going to be a better me. We should pause here to consider what humility is and what the practice of it can mean to us. Indeed, the attainment of greater humility is the foundation principle of each of AA's 12 steps. Each one busts the ego down just a little bit more. For without some degree of humility, no alcoholic can stay sober at all. Nearly all AAs have found too that unless they develop much more, huh, much more of this precious quality than may be required for just sobriety, they still haven't much chance of becoming truly happy. So if you're in AA and you're like, "This isn't it's not working for me, man," I tell you what, man, these twelve steps, man, I ain't doing. If you if you if you got that going on in your mind, this may well be. The problem. This might be where you can do some work to get a different perspective. Without it, they cannot live to much useful purpose or in adversity. And that's a really important part be able to summon the faith that can meet any emergency. Humility is powerful stuff. I think that's why he says it's precious. It's precious. It's gold. It's the most valuable thing you have. It's the most powerful position a person can have. All right, humility as a word and as an ideal, remember in six, we talked about the ideal versus the real. So there's a real element of humility that we get and there's a ideal element that we point towards and go after. Humility as a word and as an ideal has a very bad time of it in our world. Not only is the idea misunderstood, the word itself is often intensely disliked. Many people have not even a nodding acquaintance with humility as a way of life. Humility, as a way of life. That's a hint to how we're going to serve God and our fellow man. Much of the everyday talk we hear and a great deal of what we read highlights man's pride in his own achievements. With great intelligence, men of science have been forcing nature to disclose her secrets. The immense resources now being harnessed promise such a quantity of material blessings that many have come to believe that a man-made millennium lies just ahead this is 1939 it's published so that's or no this this is 18 years after that 18 years after that so 1957 so that's a that's pretty providential isn't it hmm poverty will disappear well that didn't happen and there will be such abundance that everybody can have all the security and personal satisfactions he desires we certainly do our best to to have that right The theory seems to be that once everybody's primary instincts, fourth step stuff, instincts out of control, primary instincts are satisfied, there won't be much left to quarrel about. The world will then turn happy and be free to concentrate on culture and character. See, that's always wrong, right? That's always wrong. It's the seeking that is the exciting, not the finding, not the getting there. It's the seeking, the journey, the path. The exploration, the discovery, that's the good stuff. That's the really good stuff. And that's what step seven, if we can humble ourselves, we get a lot of that. We get a lot of that. That's so fantastic. The world will then turn happy and be free to concentrate on culture and character. Well, who's going to do that if all their needs are met, right? Solely by their own intelligence and labor, men will have shaped their own destiny. Yeah, so that doesn't work for this, this guy right here, I'll tell you that. Certainly no alcoholic and surely no member of AA wants to deprecate, which means to criticize or, you know, put something down, material achievement. Nor do we enter into debate with the many who still so passionately cling to the belief that to satisfy our basic natural desires is the main object of life. But we are sure that no class of people in the world ever made a worse mess of trying to live by this formula than alcoholic. So if you identify yourself, if you believe, hey, man, I am an alcoholic. What comes next is really important. For thousands of years, we have been demanding more than our share of security, prestige, and romance. One of our problems, right? Instincts gone awry. We want to see what we can wrestle out of this world. We ain't concerned one bit about what we're putting back in it. When we seem to be succeeding, we drink to dream still greater dreams. When we were frustrated, even in part, we drank for oblivion. That is definitely me. Key sentence, never was there enough of what we thought we wanted. Never was there enough. Never was there enough. Especially liquor, right? There came a time in my life I I couldn't even get drunk anymore. Now everyone around me would have said, oh, he's blasted. But I couldn't get that sense of comfort, that warm feeling. That came at first. And I started mixing drugs and alcohol together and really, you know, mass quantities. And it wasn't long until that didn't work either. In all these strivings, which is an attempt to reach a goal of striving, so many of them well-intentioned, so we mean well by them, our crippling handicap had been our lack of humility. In other words, our crippling handicap is our prideful, egocentric nature. We had lacked the perspective to see that character building and spiritual values had to come first. You know, I'd, I've never met anybody that's like, hey man, I'm engaging on character building. I'm going to go out in there and build my character. That's that's my whole goal. A lot of us though want to claim the result of that, don't we? We want to be seen as that person that actually does that. Hmm. And spiritual values had to come first. Character building and spiritual values. So the first thing we're going to work on is leveraging humility and getting better at knowing who we are, right-sizing ourselves, understanding my instincts gone awry, knowing my nature, and work humility in there, and focus on how do I get better at character building and spiritual values. Hmm. So it says, we had lacked the perspective to see that character building and spiritual values had to come first. And that material satisfaction stuff were not the purpose of living. Quite characteristically, we had gone all out in confusing the ends with the means. Man, we do that all the time. We live in the results world. We think about how we're going to have this result or how I'm going to get that or some there's some sort of magical place in the future where I'm ready. The other day I was in a meeting and I heard this shared by a lot of people that they weren't ready to do blank. They weren't ready to sponsor they weren't ready to break off a relationship or whatever the case is and that's why it's so important in six and seven that when we are ready because you're always ready there's no there's no magical place in the future it's just whether you got enough of that quantity of willingness to get this thing done that's really what it's talking about do you have enough humility in order to step through step seven hmm Quite characteristically we had gone all out in confusing the ends with the means living in results world instead of regarding the satisfaction of our material desires as the means by which we could live and function as human beings we had taken these satisfactions to be the final end and aim of life and the disaster of that is you know you get the new car and well a year later it's not new anymore that payment's the same end True, most of us thought good character was desirable because we all wanna be seen that way, right? But obviously good character was something one needed to get on with the business of being self-satisfied. Critical sentence here, with a proper display of honesty and morality, we'd stand a better chance of getting what we really wanted. So something to think about there is that double life, right? The double life. Double life motivation. That if I can fool people, if I'm dishonest, I can get what I want. And so many of us do that. When we go through our fifth and sixth step, we eliminate that option. And we've become real and sort of just this one person that we know a little bit better, hopefully a lot better. We've done some soul searching and we understand that there are things about us that are quite undesirable and we want to be free of them. Ooh. That's the necessity of character building. That's the necessity of it. Because we have this hole now that was filled by living a double life. And we want to fill it with another set of things. And we got to get on with this quickly. It cannot wait. But whenever we had to choose between character and comfort, uh uh-oh, the character building was lost in the dust of our chase after what we thought was happiness. Like a handle of liquor. For a moment, it did make me happy. It was always a sense of relief when I got back in the car or got to the bar or whatever the case is and I got that first drink. There always was. Seldom did we look at character building as something desirable in itself, something we would like to strive for whether our instinctual needs were met or not. We never thought of making honesty, tolerance, and true love of man and God the daily basis of living. Yeah, never. (laughs) You know, never. Never did I stay, wake up and say that. I said, where is the booze? You know, how do I get what I want? What am I going to have to say? Do whatever. This lack of anchorage, a place to secure this lack of anchorage. So one great thing about a principle is that it never changes. And this principle of humility is a spiritual idea and it never changes. It will always be there for you to measure yourself against. So that's a little gift in the sixth step is it talks about how we can measure ourselves? How do we measure our progress? And it's the principles that give us that measure. It's the, how far am I from that ideal? I got to live where it's real. I may never attain a flawless program. However, I can strive for it and aim for it. How am I comparing to that? That is the anchor. And when we lack that anchor, lack that anchor, it's going to go on, this lack of anchorage to any permanent values This blindness to the true purpose of our lives produced another bad result. So the ultimate principle is your higher power and the descending spiritual qualities of your higher power are what you are after. It's just so important for us to have a reference point. Morality's got a lot of different definitions. Who knows what that's all about? And I think that's why there's more talk of character here than necessarily morals. Different cultures think different things about different things. So there's no way to say that there's a strict moral code out there. In any case, there is a character code. How we treat each other, how we treat other people, how we go about life will have a significant impact in filling us up with a sense of satisfaction, security, and significance. Something we're all after and we were dishonest and lied about it. Um, A guy I know in meetings says that I used to go to bars to hang out with people I didn't like. Spend money I didn't have to tell them things that weren't true. I mean, why why do I do that? You know, because I'm after that sense of significance, that sense of superiority somehow. So it goes on, for just so long as we were convinced that we could live exclusively by our own individual strength and intelligence for just that long. So the moment we give this up, for just that long was a working faith in a higher power. Impossible. So, if you want this faith in God, you got to dump this faith in you. This was true even when we believed that God existed. So, religion, it tells us, and we agnostics in the big book, is actually a barrier. It's actually a barrier. If you're highly religious, you may have a lot of trouble with this because of your preconceived notions or your prejudice towards a particular way that God is, right? And it's not that you got to dump your religion. Of course, that's not true. Indeed, the 12 steps will make it much more full. If, if you can follow these things, if you can follow these things, this was true. Even when we believed that God existed, we could actually have earnest religious beliefs, which remained barren, Hmm, barren. They didn't really have anything growing in them because we were still trying to play God ourselves, right? That's at one, two, three, and me. I do steps one, two, and three. I get the sense of spiritual awakening. I believe I've got God in my life and I'm good. I'm good. I'm forgiven, I'm this, I'm that, I got salvation. Whatever it is, I'm all done right there. And that's a huge, huge mistake because you're going to be reliant on you still. As long as we place self-reliance first, a genuine reliance upon a higher power was out of the question. That basic ingredient of all humility, that basic ingredient that is blocked by pride and ego. Yeah that basic ingredient of all humility is a genuine reliance upon a higher power. Genuine reliance upon a higher, just give that a minute. Ask yourself, do I have a genuine reliance on a higher power? And the answer is always going to be yes. If you're in your car while you're listening to this, if you're sitting in a meeting while you're listening to this, you didn't build that building, you didn't make that meeting room, you didn't invite all those people. They came by some other way. They all came without your help. And everybody on the road, you've got a great deal of faith that a higher power, things like law enforcement, are going to try to keep everybody at least toned down in their law breaking, right? You got a belief that the concrete's stronger than you. It's going to hold things up, that the traffic light's are going to work, that everybody's going to drive in some sort of a responsible way. We all have this faith. It's whether or not we are going to completely. Rely on it. That—that's the question. Not whether or not the faith is there. It's there. It's automatic. We're born with it. We don't have to think about it. It's totally intuitive. It's whether I'm going to rely on it or am I going to let that squirrel cage cut me off. As long as we place self-reliance first, so long as I believed in my thoughts and my ideas above AA's ideas, I can't stay sober. A genuine reliance upon a higher power was out of the question. That basic ingredient of all humility, a desire to seek and do God's will, was missing. And here's the turning point. For us, the process of gaining a new perspective was unbelievably painful. Gift of desperation, right? G-O-D, gift of desperation. God, it was only by repeated humiliations, uh, just continually damaging and attacking my own self-respect that we were forced to learn something about humility. We, you know, we humble ourselves a lot. It was only at the end of a long road, marked by successive defeats and humiliations and the final crushing of our, <laughs> the final crushing of our self-sufficiency that we began to feel humility as something more than a condition of groveling despair. Ooh, cause it's power. It's the most powerful thing in life. Being humble positions you in control of you, and you get to make decisions and choices. One of the choices humility gives you is to not drink or use drugs. What a great choice to have, because we've lost that choice the moment we start doing it again. It's characteristic of the addict and alcoholic, right? Every newcomer in Alcoholics Anonymous is told and soon realizes for himself that his humble admission of powerlessness over alcohol is his first step toward liberation from its paralyzing grip. Hmm, so it is that we first see humility as a necessity, a necessity, but this is the barest beginning, to get completely away from our aversion to the idea of being humble, to gain a vision of humility as the avenue to true freedom. Here it is, this is the turning point. We've moved away from it being oh my gosh, I'm just not humble and the self-centered, selfish, self-pity, prideful, egocentric, alcoholic, addict, whack job that I might be. I'm going to use humility. I'm not coming away this way. To gain a vision of humility as the avenue to true freedom of the human spirit, to be willing to work for humility as something to be desired for itself, takes most of us a long time. Long time. You keep working those steps, it might not be so long for you. A whole lifetime geared to self-centeredness cannot be set in reverse all at once. Rebellion dogs are every step at first. Of course it does. So when you, if you're a sponsor and you're working with a new guy, you got a new guy in your meeting, a new lady in your meeting, and they're like, huh, 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 hmm, huh. You know, they're huffing and puffing and everything and bowing up, and I ain't doing this God business. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Just keep them on track. Keep them moving forward in the steps. And let God do his work. Just don't worry about it. Just shrug it off and tell them none of that's a barrier. The barrier here is getting them to just do the steps. And if they can humble themselves to a new set of directions, step three, they will find step seven much more palatable. When we It goes on. When we have finally admitted without reservation, remember that at the beginning of step six, without reservation that we are powerless over alcohol, step one we are apt to breathe a great sigh of relief saying, well, thank God that's over. I'll never have to go through that again. Then we learn, often to our consternation, which is a strong, it's surprise. Consternation is what? (laughs) What, what? Surprise, often to our surprise. Then we learn, often to our consternation, that this is only the first milestone on the new road we are walking, still goaded by sheer necessity, we reluctantly come to grips with those serious character flaws that made problem drinkers of us in the first place. Flaws which must be dealt with to prevent a retreat into alcoholism once again. We will want to be rid of some of these defects. But in some instances, this will appear to be an impossible job from which we, we recoil. It is a pretty important thing. And we cling to the passionate persistence to others. And we cling with a passionate persistence to others which are just as disturbing to our equilibrium because we still enjoy them too much. Yeah. Oh. Hmm. So that brings us to the people, places, and things idea. It's not that you got to change people, places, and things. It's important to supplant God in place of their significance in your life. It, in therapy, they might be like, hey, how much of your identity is wrapped up into your hobby How much of your identity is wrapped up in being the regular at this bar? How much of your identity is wrapped up in being the guy with the case of beer on the cooler on the lake or whatever it is, you know, whatever it is, and being the wine connoisseur, the bourbon guy or the dope dude or the dope dealer or whatever it is. How much of your identity is wrapped up in that? How do we unwrap it from that and put it as you are the son of God? You are his children. You are the employee of God. You're going to do God's work. How do we do that? And step seven is that very step. We're going to say this prayer and we're going to take our mentality and say, you know what? I'm going to move towards that. And it's important that we don't cling with a passionate persistence to others that used to be a part of us destroying ourselves. It's not that you can't be friends with people you used to drink with. It's not that you can't be in places where you used to drink. Of course you can. Our book says we can go to the most sordid place on earth on such a mission. So don't fear that if you're in good fit spiritual condition, if you're doing the things of the program, you'll be able to go there like nobody's business. If not, you might have a problem. Humbling ourselves, knowing who we are is so, so vital. So it goes on. How can we possibly summon the resolution and the willingness and agreement with ourselves, willingness to get rid of such overwhelming compulsions and desires. But again, we are driven by the inescapable conclusion which we draw from a experience that we surely must try with a will or else fall by the wayside. At this stage of our progress, we are under heavy pressure and coercion, which is to act with a persuasive force. Coercion is persuasion to do the right thing. Very important. We are obliged to choose between the pains of trying and the certain penalties of failing. Here's what's so great about that. I like to talk to my guys. This is all Dan, Dan stuff. It's not the big book stuff, but you know, comfort builds capacity. I start things off. I'm uncomfortable. I have funny feelings about it. I think it's not going to work. Comfort builds capacity. As I practice driving nails with a hammer, I get better and I can drive more nails per minute. As I get more comfortable using a saw, I can do more things with that. As I get comfortable writing papers, I can write more papers in less time. Comfort builds capacity. And that's also true of spiritual things. The more comfortable I become by serving God with the guy I really am, the better capacity I will have to serve God. So this thing right at first just feels so crazy and confusing, even self-defeating, even self-destructive in a way. It's not. It's just that I'm uncomfortable and I don't like it. And one of the things that really becomes cool is that as I become more comfortable, I begin to like it. And then I desire that character building. That's been true of my story, and I go after it with a fever. It delivers such a magnificent result, far in excess, far in excess of anything I can express in words. It's something you must experience. It's a sense of confidence. It's a sense of security. It's a sense of satisfaction. I can't put that out there other than to say I walk confidently in life today, seeking the opportunities to serve God, not avoiding them, not loathing them, not going, oh my goodness, but knowing. What a gift. What a gift it is when they come. Not a, I, ho- I hope I'm helpful to other people. I know those other people are helpful to me. What a gift. So, It says, at this stage of our progress, we are under heavy pressure and coercion to do the right thing. We are obliged to choose between the pains of trying, that's that discomfort, and certain penalties of failing. That would be getting drunk, using drugs, certain penalties. These initial steps along the road are taken grudgingly, yet we do take them. So you got reluctance, willingness, and readiness, right? they, They, to me, mix together, but you can overlap reluctance into willingness, and willingness into readiness. They just get kind of all mixed up. In other words, you don't want to do it. You don't think it's right. Do it anyway, right? So we just do it anyway. We may still have no very high opinion of humility as a desirable personal virtue, but we do recognize it as a necessary aid to our survival. But when we have taken a square look at some of these defects, that sixth step, have discussed them with another person, fifth step, and have become willing to have them removed. That's what we're doing right now. Step seven, our thinking about humility commences to have a wider meaning because it's power. Our thinking about humility is power. By this time, in all probability, we have gained some measure of release from our more devastating handicaps because once we're aware of them, some of them we'll stop doing right away. Talked about that earlier in the book. We enjoy moments in which there is something like real peace of mind. To those of us who have hitherto, hitherto, which means until now, to those of us who have until now known only excitement, depression, or anxiety, in other words, to all of us, this newfound peace is a priceless, priceless gift. That's absolutely true. There's another thing about it. It's really weird. It's, I mean, you don't even know what it is or what to do with it. It's like, I, I really just don't have a whole lot going on. Everything's kind of dealt with, right? It's crazy. It's crazy. Something new indeed has been added. Where humility had formerly stood for a forced feeding on humble pie, it now begins to mean the nourishing ingredient which gives us serenity. Serenity is a deep, soulful peace. A state without stress. Serenity. This improved perception of humility starts another revolutionary change in our outlook. Our eyes begin to open to the immense values which have come straight out of painful ego puncturing, ego puncturing, ego puncturing. Until now, our lives have been largely devoted to running from pain and problems. And we don't have to do that anymore. We're going to carry our pain and our problems right on over to the higher power, right on over to hope and peace, HP, hope and peace. We fled from them as from a plague. We never wanted to deal with the fact of suffering. Escape via the bottle was always our solution. Character building through suffering might be all right for saints, but it certainly didn't appeal to us. Then in AA, we looked and listened. Everywhere we saw failure and misery transformed by humility into priceless assets. So if there's really two critical elements of AA, and even though it doesn't necessarily say it in how it works, what that we often that many meetings read ahead of time, but rigorous honesty and humility are kind of the same thing, you know, kind of the same thing. And when I was in federal prison, I was in this group called RDAP and there was this doctor guy who was like a Russian, uh, Cuban-Russian guy or something. But he had this great accent, and guys would bow up in pride. Mm, I'm not doing this or that, and he would go, "What is all deep pride about? You are in prison." We don't even call you mister. We call you inmate. What are you so proud of? What is there to be proud of? You missed your children's birthdays. Man, he was so right. On what ground do I have to stand after the debauchery of alcoholism sits in my past? I don't have anywhere to stand. Humility gives me a place to stand. It's so, so powerful. Hmm. We heard story after story of how humility had brought strength out of weakness. In every case, pain had been the price of admission into a new life, but this admission price had purchased more than we expected. It brought a measure of humility, which we soon discovered to be the healer of pain. This is how you do it. We began to fear pain less and desire humility more than ever. That's just so true of my story. I can't express that enough. Please leverage humility during this process of learning. Oh, it's a process of learning. It's not just epiphanies, catapults into the fourth dimension, philosophical understandings, religious context. It's none of that. It's just a process. It's a practice. We're going to practice this. We're going to build an experience and understanding so that we get better at leveraging humility for the benefit of others during this process of learning more about humility the most profound result of all was the change in our attitude toward god and this was true whether we had been believers or unbelievers we began to get over the idea that the higher power was a sort of bush league pin, <laughs> bush league pinch hitter which which is like you know a really bad baseball player that actually you know can do one thing right he can come in when he's needed and Well, we don't need him. We just leave him on the bench. To be called upon only in an emergency, the notion that we would still live our lives, God helping a little now and then, began to evaporate. Many of us who had thought ourselves religious awoke to the limitations of this attitude, refusing to place God first. We had deprived ourselves. We had kept from ourselves. We had purposely and voluntarily didn't get or didn't take this incredible power that's available to us that we've been made aware of. We had deprived ourselves of his help, God's help. But now the words, of myself, I am nothing. The father doeth the works. Began to carry bright promise and meaning. Of myself, I'm nothing. The father doeth the works. When you go to that meeting that you really need and there's a bunch of people there ready to help you, The Father put that together for you. When you drive to that meeting and the road and the lights and everything works, something put all that together for you, right? What is that? What is that? It's gratitude for it. It's noticing it. It's seeing it as something so much greater than you. We saw we needn't always be bludgeoned and beaten into humility. Now, for a lot of us, that's not true. If, if there's a measure to how well you're doing step set seven, take a look at the resistance you're putting into life. Are you in conflict with a lot of people? Is there an ex-wife that's really, you know, trouble for you and you just won't humble yourself to them? Even if it means they take advantage of you sometimes. Is there something in your life? Is there a work, a job that you just don't like? You know, and we go back to the family afterward in the big book and we ask this test question. And that test question is this. Are you really trying to see what you can get out of the circumstances instead of seeing what you can put into the circumstances? Are you putting greater importance, weight, significance, and emotional, cognitive effort into what you're getting out as opposed to what you are putting in? So the suggestion is, dump the ideas of what you're getting out of it. There'll be some of that there. Give it no energy and put your energy into what you are putting into it and watch these things change. That is true of step seven. If you're reading this thinking, boy, God's finally going to do something for me, or God's already done so much for me, I want you to think about it this way. What are you going to do for God? What are you going to do? If God was present with you right now, what would you do for him? What do you think God would have you do for him? And I think that would just be, what would you do for yourself under the same circumstances? Hmm. So it says, but now the words of myself, I am nothing. The father doeth the works is so important because recognizing you don't put the world together gives you a chance to function better. We saw we needn't always be bludgeoned and beaten in humility. We can just choose to use it. And you will, you will. It's such a fantastic skill. It could come quite as much from our voluntary reaching for it as it could from unremitting, unremitting suffering, never stopping. Unremitting. We'll not give up. A great turning point in our lives came when we sought for humility as something we really wanted rather than something we must have. Turning point. It marked a time when we could commence to see the full implication of step seven. Humbly, humbly, without any pride or ego, Ask God, Him, to remove our shortcomings, our weaknesses, and our character. As we approach the actual taking of step seven, see, we haven't even done it. It's just kind of, you know, the experience of step seven and how we get to it. It might be well if we AAs inquire once more just what our deeper objectives are. Each of us would like to live at peace with himself and with his fellows. Is that true you? Ask yourself, do you want to live at peace with yourself? And with your fellow man, this is how you do it. We would like to be assured that the grace of God can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. It already has. We have seen that character defects based upon short-sighted or unworthy desires are the obstacles that block our path towards these objectives. The obstacle is the path. You attack those shortcomings. You attack those character defects. You become hyper-aware of them and begin to correct them as they, as they reveal themselves in your life, as they intrude into your life. We now clearly see that we have been making unreasonable demands upon ourselves, upon others, and upon God. The chief activator of our defects has been self-centered fear, primarily fear that we would lose something we already possessed or would fail to get something we demanded. You hear that all the time in meetings living upon a basis of unsatisfied demands. Unsatisfied demands. We were in a state of continual disturbance and frustration. Therefore, no peace was to be had unless we could find a means of reducing these demands. Reducing your demands. So if you're approaching step seven, thinking what you're going to get out of it, clear the plate. Think of nothing you're going to get out of it. Reduce your demands, your expectations. Get out of the results business. Thinking of what's going to happen or how it ought to be. <laughs> That's the key. There's no peace to be had unless we could find a means of reducing these demands. The difference between a demand and a simple request is plain to anyone. If it's not plain to you, a demand absolutely requires it to happen. A simple request leaves all the other options open. The seventh step is where we make the change in our attitude, which permits us with humility as our guide. I don't know how many times he's going to say that. It's important with humility as our guide to move out from ourselves toward others and toward God. That's the big change. We've been focused on ourselves. We're not going to do that so much anymore. The whole emphasis of step seven is on humility. It is really saying to us that we now ought, the term of debt we owe, we ought to be willing to try humility in seeking the removal of our other shortcomings, just as we did when we admitted that we were powerless over alcohol and came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. If that degree of humility could enable us to find the grace by which such a deadly obsession could be banished, it already did this for you, can be banished then there must be hope of the same result respecting any other problem we could possibly have. Wow, humility, you know, this idea that I know who my true self is and I know that I'm not God and, I, and I'm grateful for all the things around me and I'm grateful for all the things that assemble my day and I'm grateful for the troubles in my life because why have all these spiritual tools and not encounter times to use them? Why have a hammer if you don't have nails and something to nail together? Why have a drill if you don't need to drill any holes? If you're not going to use the tools, well, then there's really nothing to gain, right? Why have them? So the obstacles, the adversities in our life, the uncomfortable things that happen when things don't go our way, we end up with this ability with the seven-step prayer to convert it from being all about me, poor little old me, plum disease, and self-pity and self-righteous, you know, wanting to argue and be angry at everybody we can move it towards, how do I serve God and my fellow man? Wow. It's, it's probably the most objective point of view we can actually achieve. If there's no such thing as true objectivity to the physicist, right? Perhaps this is as close as we can get. So together, let's read this seven-step seven prayer. And if you if just, just listen to it, because it says something really awesome. It says, when ready, run, are you ready? Are you ready to start stepping out and doing God's work? Are you ready to move on with your life when ready? So there's a a pathway to recovery, right? And on that pathway, you're going to bump into God and he's going to have a trash can. Here's your chance to throw all this stuff in the trash can. He says, you there's this fantastic life if you get by here, but I need all that stuff from you that's not going to work, that you don't use anymore. That's not served you good at all. And I want you to put it right here in my trash can. Drop it right here in God's trash can for me. If you'll do that, wow, things can be so, so different. And you throw stuff in that trash can and you, you really don't give it all to him. He says, it's okay, come on by. But as you bump into that stuff, as you realize it, you tap your pockets, you're like, oh man, there's some dishonesty. I want you to come back here and toss that in my trash can. When, he, when you get ready to walk on by God, you say something like this my creator i am now willing that you should have all of me all of me good and bad i pray that you now remove from me every single defective character which stands in the way which prevents me which keeps me from achieving my very own goals which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows grant me strength come on please give it to me grant me strength as i go out from here to do your work, your bidding. Amen. We have then completed step seven. It's just as simple as that. It's a really simple little prayer And I'm going to give my life over to God in a different way than step three. I'm going to go out and do God's work. I'm going to be there for other alcoholics. I'm going to be the first guy to volunteer. I'm going to be the person that doesn't get angry. I'm going to be the person that steps out of an argument. I'm going to leverage humility in so much of my life. So Here's your discussion. A great thing to talk about is how hard is that? Man, that's hard. And it bumps into all those instincts that come alive in the fourth step, right? And it challenges and elicits our character defects in a way that, oh, I don't always want to give up. How do I leverage humility? How have you leveraged humility? Tell us times where humility has meant power. Tell us times where humility, where you've done something you didn't wanna do In circumstances, you didn't want to do it, and you were exposed to what some might call blessings or an experience, a spiritual awakening as a result. How has humility contributed to that? And we can all talk about this. If you've been around AA for 30 years or you're brand new, it doesn't make any difference. You have had this experience, so the book tells us, right? Talk about it. Talk about getting arrested. Tell a funny story about how you got humbled. Tell a funny story about how you got bludgeoned into a humble nature. The reason why this is important is this. As we begin to be able to see that life is available to us, that today, if I run into people the day after I quit drinking and I meet a new person that next day, they don't know me as a drunk. They don't know me drunk. The grace of God is immediately present and I can build a new life by treating this person humbly and honestly. And we all have those people right from day one in recovery. If you're in a treatment center, you can do that right now. You can make a change and handle this as humble and honest as possible. It's so important that we get that humility because the first works we're going to do to begin to build our life back are next. And that's step eight and nine. And they are going to require this humility because we may encounter some really difficult conversations. So I hope you guys have a great discussion about humility, and thanks for listening to Step 7.